0: Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at
1: reunionnyc.com. Our passage today is Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Is there one more? Yep. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, I love you so much, and uh, what a time it is that we get to gather, sing these songs to you, And, and, and truly, there's so many words in these songs that we want to aspire to. We sing them so that we believe them. And so we come to say, worthy is a lamb who was slain, just like in the book of Revelation. We think you're worthy. We think that you're deserving of our attention, which is why we're here today. So I pray, God, that you would speak, that you would speak to us personally where we need hope and where we need wisdom and where we need encouragement, that you would speak life into that. And then where we need challenge, where we need correction, where we need to turn back to you, I pray that you would call us to do that um, today. We love you, Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we started the series in the book of Revelation, which, come on, the book of Revelation is like very simple stuff, basic, no metaphors or anything like that, Um, but we're really focused on chapters 2 and chapter 3, which are um, letters, actually, to seven different churches in Asia Minor. It's modern-day Turkey. If you weren't here last week, I'm going to do a very short recap, but I did a lot of history and a lot of digging last week, and so if you want to go back um, to listen to that on our YouTube or Spotify, you can do that. Um, Revelation in terms of genre. Let's talk about genre for just a second. It's apocalyptic, meaning it has to do with the end times. It's prophetic. um, And uh, prophecy gets a little bit of a bad rap because um, if you think about the Old Testament prophets, what are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to warn people about something in the future or they're trying to give hope in the midst of persecution. And so prophetic literature should be read through a lens of hope. So it's apocalyptic, Hopefully, it's um, prophetic and hopeful, and then it's a circulating letter, okay? And you're really going to get a sense of that um, today, that it's a letter. Revelation was written by the beloved apostle um, John. Last week, we talked about how um, John is the writer of uh, the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, likely. Um, And one of the things we talked about last week was just mind-blowing is that Jesus uh, called John to follow him when he was a middle schooler, 11, 12, 13 years old. And he's writing this in AD 96, maybe in his 70s or 80s. And so the, the arc of John's life has been faithfulness to the person of Jesus. And where is he writing this from? He's writing it from uh, the, uh, a Greek island called Patmos um, in the AD 96. Um, it's a little island out in the Aegean Sea. He's been exiled out onto this island because he will not pay homage to Rome or to Caesar. And so he writes the book of Revelation as a sort of veiled letter to encourage the churches, to bolster them up in the midst of persecution, and to warn them about the um, coming, the second coming of Jesus. So often we read the book of Revelation. If you've ever tried to read it, you're like, I do not understand. I want to help us today um, try to understand that. The um, symbolism and imagery that we'll see today in the text I think is very clear and very understandable. I'm not claiming, though, I wanted this little preface. I'm not claiming that as you go through the whole book, there's very clear and easy uh, ways to understand that. Today, you're going to get a clearer picture, though. Here's a high-level summary from uh, a scholar um, on the book of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to persuade its hearers and readers, both ancient and contemporary, to remain faithful to God in spite of past, present, or possible future sufferings, whatever form that suffering might take and whatever source it may have simply for being faithful. It's a call to faithfulness. All right. In spite of memory experiences or fear, revelation tells us that covenant faithfulness is possible because of Jesus and worthwhile because of the glorious future God has in store for us in the entire created order. And then hear this with your heart. Hear this with your heart. Revelation, we might say, provides us with a vivid and imagined and prophetic call to an anti-assimilationist, a life-giving Christian witness to and against and within an immoral and idolatrous imperial culture of death. Can you say, wow, that's a really good way to describe culture, an in, 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 idolatrous imperial culture of death? It does so not only by offering the hope of God's future for salvation, but also showing us that God is sovereign now. What does it all mean? It means this. If you need hope, you can find it here. If you need to look into the future um, in a way that seems um, within your reach, if you've ever felt confused or lost, there's actually wisdom here to be faithful, all right? And we call it maybe like a a poetic hope that you get in the book of Revelation. Jesus is coming back to make all things new. How do we join in on that? That's what we're going to see today. So, uh, these seven letters that we're going to be looking at um, are in the season of Lent. We're going to, this is going to take us all the way um, to Easter. So at the end of today, I'll talk about um, Lent. And I'll just before we get right into Ephesus here, I, I want us to zoom out. We're so prone to like hearing sermons and to like taking in content and just taking it as an individual, right? These are, um, I think they, they can be personal, but let us not forget that when we look at the seven letters, they're written to a body of people. They're written to a group of people. And so I want you today, yes, is there, maybe, maybe there's a word in there for you and a challenge in there for you. Sure. I want you to zoom out of yourself a little bit, though, today to, to think communally. Here's how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, the gospel is never for individuals but always for a people. Sin fragments us, separates us, and sentis, sentences us to solitary confinement. The gospel restores us, unites us, and sets us into community the life of faith revealed and nurtured in the biblical narratives is highly personal, right? I love the differentiation here. It's personal, right? It's for you, but it's not merely about you. It's not merely individual. Always there is a family, a tribe, and a nation. So as a church, what are we? We're an interdependent group of people. We're fighting our own autonomy, and we're saying, I actually need other people in my life and in community. And guess what that means? We stand up here. It's awesome. Community group is coming. Life in community is messy. It's busy, but it's the best life. It's the best life. It's so fun. It's going to require um, forgiveness from us. It's going to require our time and our energy and our resources, but it's the best, all right? So here is the letter to the church in Ephesians. Revelation 2 verse 1 says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus Angel in the the original language, the Greek there, is uh, angelos, um, and the word really just translates messenger. And so scholars debate, does messenger um, mean an actual angel that watches over the church? Does it mean like the messenger is like a pastor or like a leader in that church? Um, Some commentators believe that the word is actually um, the ethos of the church. It's the spirit of the, the church that's there. I'm fine with all three. I don't really know. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you just have to say, I genuinely don't know. I'm, f- I'm, I'm fine with the angel language. That sounds really great. If this church had an angel over, I'm like, I'm down with that. I don't know all the functions of angels in the Bible. Like, I'm down, though. All right? We, I need that, okay? That sounds great. So here's what Jesus does, okay? He's, um, you guys remember, I, I don't know if this is like corporate or where we learn this, but you guys remember the compliment sandwich, right? If you, if you want to give a critique to someone, You you put it as the meat, and there's, like, bread, right? I don't don't know, like, what else is on the sandwich. But this is Jesus originated the compliment sandwich. He does this in every single letter. Jesus is a genius. um, A corporate American has nothing on him. So he commends the church for what they do, right? That's the bread, I guess. And then he gives them a criticism right? He says, here's the way you miss my heart for you. Here's the way that um, you're missing the kingdom of God. This is the system in the way that I have. And then he comes with a a, a promise or a a way of setting them on the right path. He does this in every letter. And so let's talk about Ephesus in order to understand what's going on here. Ephesus is a pivotal city in the Greco-Roman world. We used this map last week. You see the island of Patmos right down there in the middle. And um, it's a little bit practical. You say, why is Ephesus first? Well, it's the first uh, place the mail carrier would come um, on, this, on this route um, into uh, Asia Minor. In terms of the church itself, it was planted by Paul. We see this in the book of Acts. His understudy, Timothy, came and pastored that church. Um, a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila were leaders in that church. And then John, the writer here, actually took over as the pastor of that church. All-star apostle team, right? Like Does it get better than this? Who started this church, right? And so in terms of its global impact, Ephesus is a significant city. Um, It's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Population estimates are 225,000. And really what you have in in each of these letters, particularly in Ephesus, is you have the urban centers of the world. Um, This one in particular, as you can see, is a port city. Um, You're thinking Shanghai, Los Angeles, New York, um, what are what are urban centers really known for? Well, these are gateways into the rest of the world, right? Um, if you look at Ephesus here, it would bridge um, Rome and Greece and Asia Minor, right? And so this port city is absolutely um, influential. And urban centers are, you know, what are they known for? Population density, right? Up-and-coming thought and culture, um, centers of economic life. So Ephesus is really crucial in this way. And so when you would, when you would come into Ephesus... You would come into the, the marketplace. It was called the Agora. Um, it was the center of commerce, uh, social and religious activities. And Jesus actually, it's, so, it's a, a little bit hard to see, but he actually calls out the two main things you need to understand about Ephesus. There's two things here. One is Rome and the emperor, and emperor in the time, Domitian. And the second one is the Greek goddess Artemis. And Jesus address, addresses both of these. So let me show you. When you came into Ephesus, you would get off the boat, and you would look up, and the first thing you would see would be tributes to Domitian. Um, there was a temple there constructed in his honor, and so 50 feet high in the air was actually this statue. Fist, right? Rome, power, um, your, uh, your taxes come, um, and, and you're provided for by Caesar, right? And so you come into the city... And this would be one of the first things that you would see. And then what would happen is, is um, um, Domitian in this time, to get into the agora, to the, to the center of social and economic life, what you would do is you would walk over to the burner. There would be incense or salt, and you would need to um, burn that incense or throw that salt as a way of making a claim about who you are and, and who the gods are. And Domitian, we talked about this last week, was absolutely brutal to Christians. It's estimated that he killed 40,000 Christians during his reign because Christians wouldn't make the claim um, Caesar and Kyrios, which is Caesar is Lord, right? And so in Ephesus, by and large, the people would say, well, I'm, ha- I'm happy to do that, right? The a, a Greek gods, the pantheon of gods. It, what, what's adding one more God? Christians would come and say, there's one Lord. It, it, there's one God. His name is Jesus, and, and I, can't, I can't do that. And so what happened to Christians in Ephesus? They were shut out of social and economic life because of Rome. And this is why John is writing this letter, penning this letter from the island of Patmos. And the Christians were, what, what happened is, is because they wouldn't give the title, they were pushed to the fringes and to the margins of society. Now you'd say, well, why does all this history matter? Well, look at what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. These are the words of him. So Jesus is saying, the person that's writing this, me, holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's that, that imagery and that symbolism that gets so confusing, right? But let's add a little bit of history here, and we'll just leave this, um, this coin up here. Records tell us that Domitian um, had a son who died at a very young age, possibly at childbirth, um, maybe up to the age of, of 10. There were some different stories that I was reading. But for Domitian, he had this belief that when he lost his son, that his son was in the heavens. And so this was actually the mint in that time, you, you can see it. On one side is Domitian, and, and um, right, he, he's putting himself on the coinage. I hold the power, right? You're paying taxes to me. I actually own this. And then what's on the other side? It's his son over the earth, right, conquering the earth. And what is he surrounded by? It's a little bit hard to see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven stars. It's the coinage. It's the mint, Right? And so right in the marketplace, if you're, uh, if you're in Ephesus, you receive this letter and you're reading it, what do you know all of a sudden? This person is saying, whoa, 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 look at the coinage in your hand, in your pocket. It says that Domitian and his son are rulers and conquerors and they're going to provide for you. And they sit over the earth. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. I hold the seven stars. I'm the one with control and power. I'm the one that's holding it all together. This isn't going to provide for you or care for you in the slightest. And look at what um, Domitian did with his son. Put his son over. As a ruler or a conqueror, what does Jesus say? I walk. I walk. Jesus is not the kind of ruler that's dominating, domineering, asking, requiring, pushing down on you. He says, you know, I'm actually the kind of God that comes downstairs from heaven, and I'm willing to walk with you. And the seven golden lampstands, what did Jesus say when he was walking the earth? He says, you, the body of Christ, is the light of the world. And so the seven golden lampstands, all that means is the seven churches. And so seven denotes wholeness. So John is actually playing on the the words. But Jesus is saying something very, very practical to these people. He's saying, I'm the one that's going to provide for you. I'm not distant. I'm not vague. I'm actually the God that's in your midst because I love you, right? This, this is actually what he's communicating here to the church. Jesus cares about his church, which is why he gives us the sandwich, right? He, he starts with the commendation. Here's the thing that you're doing so good. So clearly, when you read the text, you're like, wow, this is, a, this is controversial, right? This is a pushback against Rome, but it's not just a pushback against Rome. Jesus is like, let's keep going. It's also a pushback against the Greek gods of the time, Artemis. And so verse 2 says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people; that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. I read this this week, and I thought, this church is perfect. Like what? what like what could possibly be be wrong, right? They don't tolerate poor theology. They have sound doctrine and belief. They're upholding truth. Um, the, the word that kept popping up this week was like their orthodoxy, right? Their orthodoxy is spot on. And you notice in this here, it says, you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Now, Ephesus, Greco-Roman world, uh, Greek gods are everywhere. And Ephesus, um, when you came in, you would see Domitian's temple. But greater than that would be the temple to the goddess Artemis. Um, Artemis uh, was the daughter of Zeus, uh, the goddess of wild animals, um, the hunt, and fertility. And so um, the temple, I think there's a picture here. In, 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 um, this was one of the seven wonders of the world in this time, 127 marble pillars. It was um, 350 feet by 180 feet. This is bigger than a football field. Go Chiefs. They, they win by seven tonight, just saying it. Um, but this is bigger than a football field. And so people would come here, women would come here and pray, right, infertile, right? This would be hope for them, right? I could come and pray to the goddess Artemis. Um, The other function of the temple that people often miss, especially when you're reading the gospels, the the temple is also the place of finance, right? This is where you're coming and exchanging um, money, um, loans are given out in this place. This is banking headquarters and worship center all in one, all right? I think I just described a megachurch. But anyway, um, Acts 19, Paul, sorry. Paul is in Ephesus, okay? Paul's in Ephesus, he goes to the temple and what happens is, is it's bad for business. It's just bad for business. People are becoming followers of Jesus and business is not going well in the temple, right? And so here's what happens in Acts chapter 19. I, this whole chapter, you should go read it. It's very fun. A riot breaks out, but I'll just read this part to you. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty." When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. And so Christians in the city, uh, people, you know, are coming to worship and and they're they're, they're breaking out in this riot. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But Paul's like, yeah, I'm going to make this business fail, right? And Jesus comes along and says, you church, I know your deeds, I know your work. I know your perseverance. You can't tolerate wicked people. Who's he talking about? He's saying you don't tolerate false gods, Artemis. And imagine, imagine in this time, I mean, there's so many things in our life that we look to for hope and for meaning, and we're searching and we're searching and we're searching, and they leave us empty and dry, right? And, and, and Jesus is actually just saying something really practical here. You are actually doing a great job pushing back against Rome and Domitian. You're doing a great job pushing back against the false gods of this time. What could they possibly be critiqued for? They're upholding truth. They're orthodox. What what does it all mean? And then Jesus says this in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the things you did at first. Uh, We we, we had the marriage retreat yesterday, and so I was thinking about first love, right? Like, what do people do when they're, like, first in love? They do weird and dumb stuff. This is true. It's true. Like, you're you're falling in love with someone. You, like, stay on the phone until 3 in the morning. Why? You could just talk in the morning when you wake up. That's that's silly. Like, you watch movies over FaceTime, and, like, you side sit at restaurants, and you give each other pet names, like, way too early. And it's, like, so weird, right? I have no point with that. But anyway, this is just weird. First love. Anyway, so I read this this week. I read this this week, and I'm just like, what? I don't, I don't, I, I genuinely don't understand what Jesus is saying to the church. Because I, I read this passage before. I'm sure, I'm sure some of you have read this. And you say, you say yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. That doesn't make any sense. You just commended them for how great they are at holding to the truth. And so why would you possibly come along and say you've forsaken your first love? And so many commentators are like, they lost their love for Jesus. And I'm like, how? Like, they're, they're like the purest church I've ever read about in my life. And then I took in this context. I'm like, they're pushing back against Rome. They're pushing back. Uh, against artemis like what, what could they possibly be wrong and then i read this and i i I'm, i can you can disagree with me on this I'm, I'm actually totally fine with that today but but listen to this from this scholar jeffrey wyma he says while its commitment to orthodoxy is a virtue for which the ephesian sh- church should be praised it was also apparently a vice what is true of people can also be true of churches their greatest strength can paradoxically become their greatest weakness write that down Right, That is just true about life. Your greatest strength can become your greatest weakness. It's a great way to figure out your blind spots in your life, but keep going here. The Ephesian church was so preoccupied with identifying wicked people, exposing false prophets, and rejecting the sinful practice of the Nicolaitans that a spirit of suspicion and mistrust permeated their fellowship, making it impossible for them to be caring and compassionate community they had been in the past. In short, they were a church of loveless orthodoxy. They were a church of loveless orthodoxy. They got the truth right. They got orthodoxy right. They're doing all the right things, except they forgot to love their neighbor. That's, that's how I see it, right? They, they, they have the practice of shunning the lesser gods and idols of the culture at large. They're doing well at that. And they're holding so tightly to that orthodoxy that they're actually choking out the love that they can have for their neighbor. And I, I find this so fascinating that people who profess faith in Jesus can over time look less and less like Jesus, right? I, don't, I, don't, I, I genuinely don't think that Jesus is talking about them losing their, their uh, what Eugene Peterson calls their zestful love for Jesus. But actually they're losing the outflow of love, love towards the other. They're, they're missing it completely. And if you, if you look earlier in John's gospel, um, Jesus shows up on the scene. And John's gospel is a little bit different in terms of the narrative of, of his birth and Christmas. Um, we're getting a description about the person of Jesus. In John chapter 1.14, it says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. This is the, this is the whole embodiment of the person of Jesus. Jesus is our example in how to lead with grace and follow with truth. We can do both of those things. Both of these things matter. And some churches, they hold so tightly onto truth that they choke out grace in the community. I think this is what happens at the church at Ephesus. And then, of course, you, you, you know some churches that hold so tightly to grace that they end up watering down the truth. We want to be a church that does both of these things, that actually leads with grace, that we actually believe that what Jesus says about life is good for people, like their whole life, not just their spiritual life, but their whole life, and that, his, that the life that Jesus led is actually compelling. And we, we're, not, we're not using our faith as a weapon to hurt other people, but actually it, it makes us softer and tender so that we can walk to people and say, this is actually good news, right? And, and you know what that means too? It means that we're actually, um, we're actually careful with our faith, Right, that that when you when you look at these passages, I'm sure the, the the church at Ephesus like they're like you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Right? There are moments to tell people they're wrong, but how do you do that in a compelling way? You walk carefully with your truth, and what do we do after that? We take the truth, right? We, proc- we proclaim boldly the truth that that life following Jesus is right and better and true, and both of those things can actually be held together. And do you, do, are you beginning to see? how living and active the Bible is. The Bible is crazy living and active. You start reading it and you're like, I don't even know what that means for me. I lost my zestful love for Jesus. Don't miss it. Jesus actually has a word for like the here and the now. This is living and active like today. Jesus is speaking right into our cultural moment via the church at Ephesus. So how do you receive this today? And and maybe the better way to say it because I said in the beginning, how do we receive this today? loveless orthodoxy. Loveless orthodoxy. You know what I thought? I read this passage. I got to this point in the sermon, and I'm like, I don't have anything to write. Like, I think our church swims in a water, swim uh, in the, the larger cultural waters of, of moral relativism. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in another church. I thought, let's just, let's just skip this one, you know? Like, I don't, I don't think our church really struggles with this because I look around, and I know this church, and I'm like, this is a loving church, right? These people are genuine. And then I thought, no, 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 don't, Don't shun truth when it hits you. So just a couple things for us. Um, I had a really great conversation with Christine earlier this week, and it was very helpful in thinking about loveless orthodoxy. Um, And one of the things that she and I talked about was there's a genuine heart for compassion in in our church. Um, So deeds of justice and mercy. It's like, yes, let's go after that. Let's pray in that way. Let's get organized. Let's make our website look really good in those things. And I'm like, we're getting organized in those things, and I'm seeing – movement. And so the heartbeat is there. Let's align with Jesus for his heart, for the poor and the marginalized and the down and out and the lonely and the disregarded. And like, it's not hard to get us fired up and passionate about that. And then I wonder about our relationship with time in this way. I'm just going to get really, really practical here. Are you and I, talking to myself too here, are we slowing down enough to take time to really do relationships with people? And so if you, if you sign up to serve one-off, I, I think God honors that and it's a good thing. But oftentimes what we do is we sign up and we do that and we do it from a position of privilege and power and we don't understand the impact that we're making in a negative way by saying, I have something that you need and I'm going to give it to you. Are we slowing down enough to create a relationship with a person that we really could genuinely care about and take the time to listen to and to provide for in a way that honors them? Do you know the person's name you're serving? Do you know the person's name you're serving? Are you going slow enough to say, God, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm on the train this morning, but I just, I'm going to pray and listen. God, would you, is there something you want me to do on this train? Do you just want me to be quiet and pray to you? Do, you? do you want me to sit on the train? Is there something going on that, I, that a way that I can represent you today? A need that you actually tangibly want me to meet because I've created enough buffer and time in my life to actually care about another person. And so the heartbeat is there. I'm I'm not going to deny that. The heartbeat for love and care for the other is there. But is it met tangibly? Because too often, I'm too fast. I'm going way too fast. And I think, think, you know what? my, My intention is there. My heart is there. But is your practice really there? Let me give you one more thing. And maybe you'd hear this a little bit personally. Are you holding the truth of Jesus in judgment or in love? Some of you in the room need to take this a little bit more personally, that your edges are a little bit sharp, and they need to be trimmed down, that you're actually becoming judgmental, that um, there's a bitterness that has seeped into you, where you would think, why don't people sacrifice like I do? Why don't people give like I do? Why don't people serve like I do? I show up, where's everyone else, right? The default shift of the human heart is always self-sufficiency and inward right? And so what happens over time in, in many churches, I, I, I'm, I'm pushing. I'm, I, think this is the, I think this is the posture of Revelation in the book of Exodus, I, I mean, a book of Revelation, and, and what Jesus is saying. It's, it's not easy, but I think Jesus is really pushing um, to the church, and I, I, I want to be able to, to hone in myself. Um, one of the things that happens in, in, in any community is your circle gets full, is you say, I got enough people in my circle. I have enough friends, and you're saying, I'm maxed out. Right? And so what happens is we say, community group is full, no one else is, is welcome, no one else is invited. Right? There are logistical challenges to, to all of this, absolutely. But one of the things I, I want to caution us on as a church is not to drift inward. Let's always be ready for, for um, new people, an open door for the other, for people that are unlike us, that we're not closed off and growing inward, because ultimately, what does that say to the world? That's a loveless orthodoxy. They're not open to, to anything outside of themselves. When the heart of Jesus is always welcome, the heart of Jesus is always a heart of hospitality, and I don't want us to become a church of loveless orthodoxy. We can actually push back against that, and we can take this to heart today. And so, I'm going to leave you um, with that. I don't, I, don't, I don't want us to be so smart that we miss loving our neighbor. Like, sometimes it just becomes a little bit more um, um, practical. So, This is our pathway every week. Good good luck to all of us. Good luck to me. Uh, It's going to be fun. What we want to do here, I'm going to put this up on the screen. Um, I'm excited for the historical background, um, seeking understanding behind this, the the metaphor. But let's lean into that communal repentance. So here's a couple things I want us to um, engage with. Um, this week um, is Ash Wednesday. So as a church, we really want to be like semi-liturgical. We have some practices, some um, repetition, prayers of the people. This week is an opportunity to step into that. So um, let me go through these really quickly here. Ash Wednesday prayer um, this Wednesday, 730. Where are my morning people at? Come on. Come on. All right. I'll see you there. The rest of you, I don't know. I said earlier that we're going to sh- separate the sheep and the goats. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's true. So just ignore me. Um, 730, that's going to be in person, um, or online. If you, if you want to join online, that's totally acceptable. Um, in person in our office or online. And here's what we're going to be doing. If you've never participated in the Ash Wednesday service, very simple, very powerful. Um, 730 is the time we're going to start at 745. 715 is the start time. Okay. That's, that's how you get there, get you there on time. We're, it's going to be 35 minutes. Okay. And so here's what we're going to be doing. A very, very short teaching just to, to root you in what we're doing. Um, We're going to leave space for personal confession that's just going to be kind of on your own quietly. I'll lead us in a corporate confession and assurance of pardon, um, and then there'll be a couple other prayers. If you're in person, uh, you can receive ashes. Um, If you're not a morning person, no judgment to you. Uh, Our noon will be online only, same format except no ashes. Um, Maybe AI could do like some digital ashes on you or something like on the screen. If someone could figure that out, that'd be sweet. Um, So that's Wednesday. Sign up for that. And then last week we talked about this. We're going to be doing a Thursday corporate fast through Lent. It's seven weeks. And um, fasting is, um, is a way of denying yourself and limiting yourself. But we don't end there. A lot of places end there. And they're like, just deny yourself, limit yourself. We're not going to end there. We're giving ourselves, or the, the, the verse in Joel 2 is to return to God with all of your heart. Our intention is to create space. And so the invitation is Thursday corporate fast. As a church, we'll be posting some stuff. Um, We're writing a little bit of uh, a blog uh, about embodied spirituality and what it looks like to do spirituality with our body and what this practice actually looks like. Um, And so what you'll do is you'll eat dinner on Wednesday night, and then it's a 24-hour fast. So on Thursday, you're not going to eat breakfast or lunch if you participate in this. And then um, you eat dinner um, on Thursday evenings, and you're freeing up time. This is the most important part of the fast is that you're freeing up time and so what are you using that time for that you would normally eat for 20, 30, 45 minutes, whatever it may be? You're, you're sitting with a friend and talking. You're praying. You're going on a prayer walk. You're using the money that you would have spent on lunch on someone else. You could buy a coworker lunch. You could walk the street and fi- find uh, someone that's hungry that needs lunch. But um, you could take the money that you uh, would have spent on lunch and um, give it to a cause that you believe in. And so you're replacing the practice with the, that space, all right? And then lastly, this is, this is for you. This is personal. It's a 40-day Lenten fast. Um, what is distracting you? What is numbing you out in this life? Like, we have so many coping mes- mechanisms and ways of numbing in this world. This is just an invitation into, like, I want to take a break from social media. I, I need some space in my, in my life um, for something different. But I'm, I'm going to unplug and turn off the TV for 40 days. Um, do not hear this as like moralistic behavior change. I don't care. I, how are we going to return to God with all of our, our hearts? All right? And so we'll push, that, um, we'll push that blog out probably on Tuesday, and it'll have each of these in there so you can go, and there's just resources for you to engage um, in this way. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to ask. So let's end this way. Let's stand together. Um, I'll pray. Um, while I'm praying, maybe the communion service could come forward. Let's pray.